typewriters. They changed the world. It's difficult to give the exact year of their invention because there were many different models being worked on at the same time. But an important date is 1874. This was the year the QWERTY keyboard was designed. And the genius of the QWERTY keyboard was that by separating the most used letters, it prevented the machine from jamming and seizing up. And the design took off. By 1910, all the typewriters were standardized with this design. And from there, the technology changed very little for the next 90 years. In no time at all, typewriters became an indispensable tool for all forms of writing other than those personal handwritten notes. Offices, newspaper rooms, families all had one. Mark Twain was the first author to write a novel on one. And I'm sure many of you in this room either had one at work or at home. You can possibly still hear the click-clack in your ears. In the year 1909, as typewriters were taking off, a man named G.C. Mayers wrote something very interesting. He described a hypothetical situation that would allow a man sitting at his typewriter in London to hold written converse with correspondence in the furthest most parts of the globe without the intervention of a physical connection. What does that sound like to you? To me, it sounds like he's talking about email. Decades, decades before it was invented. And perhaps this is one of the most fascinating things about typewriters. They anticipated and they prepared the way for the future. And indeed, when that future was realized and the personal computer was invented, typewriters quickly disappeared. There are now no typewriters made in the UK. The last was produced in 2012 and was given to the London Science Museum. Typewriters then were essential in the development of word processing, but now the technology has advanced, they no longer exist. Think about it. When we type on a computer, we are still using the old typewriter technology. We still use QWERTY keyboards. But we also realize that the computer far transcends what the typewriter was. Everything like the early users, like GC Mayers foresaw, is now found in the computer. Now this compares to how the Apostle Paul views the Jewish law. Everything that the law wanted to be when it was young, as it was revealed to Moses, is found now in Christ and the life of the Spirit. Therefore, when a believer lives trying to follow Jesus with the help of the Spirit, they're not living contrary to the law. They're transcending the law. They're doing something better. And that's why they must not go back. When the computer age arrived, manual typewriters were put away. They belonged to the former era. We wouldn't dream of using a typewriter now. But in putting them away, we didn't destroy them. We fulfilled them by typing on a computer. 
And Paul wants the Galatians to do the same, to put the law away. Not because it was bad in its day, it was very good, but because it served its time. He wants them to know that without the law, their saviour wouldn't have arrived. The law had to come first. But now that Jesus has come, they live under him. Because he's fulfilled the law entirely. I hope this illustration of typewriters being fulfilled by computers is helpful for you. If you understand that illustration, it will unlock this passage for you. Paul is now starting to bring this letter to the Galatians to a close. He's finished his doctrinal arguments and now he wants to focus on the practical implications. In light of what he's been teaching, he wants to instruct the Galatians on how they are to live on a day-to-day basis. And it's going to take him all of chapter 5 and 6 to do it. Now this section begins with a ringing declaration of all that the letter has been about so far. Verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Freedom. That's what this letter is all about. When the Galatians met Jesus through the teaching of Paul, they found themselves set free. Free from the bondage of paganism. They no longer have to do the rounds of all the temples every day. They no longer have to offer a sacrifice to the God of fertility if they want a baby, or the God of the harvest if they want a good crop, or the God of the sea if they want a good voyage. They no longer have to fear a thunderbolt from the skies because they haven't done their rituals properly. They no longer have to worry every day whether they have done enough to keep the gods happy. Christ has set them free. They are loved, they are cherished, they are in the family of God. Their sins are forgiven, their death is no longer the end. They have assurance forevermore. And all of this Paul has been labouring through this letter. And I hope the wonder of it has begun to seep into our hearts as well. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, we are free people. We no longer have to feel shame and guilt. We have been forgiven. We no longer have to fear death or hell. We are glory bound. We no longer have to worry whether we've done enough, whether we've done enough good things to outweigh the bad things. We are God's people, loved deeply by him. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Freedom is the gift of the gospel and God wants us to live in light of it. The question Paul now turns to is how? How are the Galatians to live as free people? How are we, the readers today, to use the freedom that Christ has won for us? If we no longer have to waste our time touring temples and practicing rituals, if we no longer have to fill our minutes agonizing and sweating over, we've done enough good things, how are we to use that time? Well, in this passage, Paul starts off by telling us two things that we must not do before telling us more positively what we should. Let's have a look. 
The first thing that Paul says that we must not do is that we must not use our hard-won freedom to fall back under the Jewish law. We've not been set free so we can immediately become slaves again. Verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now I'm not going to spend too long on this one because this is what the whole letter has been about and I think we've probably got the message now. As followers of Jesus, we are not to live lives burdened by the requirements of the Old Testament law. Remember what the situation in Galatia is. Through preaching, uh, Paul has seen converts come full of joy, full of the Spirit, and he started a church. Paul was then forced to go away to tend to other business, and when he left Galatia, the trouble began. A group of Jewish nationalists came into the region and started telling these young believers that they still hadn't done enough. (laughs) If they wanted to be acceptable to God, yes, believing in Jesus was a good start, but they needed to do more. They had to now add on the law as well. In other words, to be acceptable to God, they had to follow Jesus, but they also had to become a Jew. They had to be circumcised. They had to eat kosher food. They had to go to Jerusalem for all the festivals. They had to observe sacred days. And we've seen over the previous weeks, Paul fight against this teaching again and again and again. The Galatians are not to start following the Jewish law. They're not to try and add anything on to following Jesus because Jesus is all they need. They're not to get the old typewriters out because computers are here. And Paul has laboured. You don't need to become Jews because through Jesus, God's family has now expanded to all the peoples of the world. Remember that great verse. There's neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. They're all one in Christ Jesus. And this passage, he adds, don't be fooled by these false teachers. Don't you see, if you abandon Christ to follow the law instead, you don't just have to keep one or two bits, the bits that you like. You've got to keep all of it. You don't just have to get circumcised. You've got to watch what you eat. You've got to watch what you wear. You've got to watch who you socialise with. This is slavery again. This is a return to fear. This is dangerous. This is deadly. Because nobody's been able to keep all of the law. No one's been able to make themselves righteous. If you fall away from the grace in Christ and try and earn your salvation through the law again by keeping lots of rules, you're heading for death once more. So do not, under any circumstances, use the freedom that Jesus has won for you to choose to go back under the law again. That's madness. The law was there to point to Jesus, just as typewriters prepared the ground for computers. Do not go back. What is here now is better. And to highlight the seriousness of this instruction, Paul breaks away from his train of thought to condemn again those who are leading the Galatians astray. These nationalists are like intruders who run onto the racetrack during the Olympics and knock the competitors out their lanes. These are like leaven in a batch of bread that sours the whole lot. Oh, how Paul looks forward to the day when God will judge their behaviour. 
And Paul has been hurt by what these intruders have been doing. He's been hurt by the damage that they've caused to the converts in Galatia. And so he finishes with this astonishingly sarcastic comment. These nationalists, they're keen on circumcision, are they? They want to snip a bit off their manhood, do they? Well, I wish they'd go and cut the whole off. We don't read that verse in Sunday school very often. Paul's angry, he's hurt. But he's passionate about this. I think we get the point. Jesus has set us free. We must not use that freedom to fall back again under the law. That was true for the Galatians in Paul's day. It's true for us today. Any form of legalism that we try to bring into the church, be that arguments over whether we should have organs or guitars or how we should dress or non-essential doctrines being argued and a standpoint being made. You have to believe this. There's no place for that. As believers, we're free from these things. And as verse 6 tells us, all God looks for is faith in Christ. To be acceptable to him, what matters is faith in Christ. And that faith is always expressed in love. But this then leads Paul on to the equal and opposite error. Over the last few weeks, some people have come to me and said, Andrew, you keep saying that we've been set free from the law, but that cannot possibly mean that we can do whatever we like. Because otherwise there's going to be anarchy. People are going to get hurt. How, how is that what God wants? Well, those people who have come and asked me that, and you know who you are, you're absolutely right. Because after stressing that we mustn't use our freedom to return to under the law again, Paul also says we mustn't abuse that freedom. And this is verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Do not use that freedom to indulge the flesh. We have been set free from the law, but that does not mean that Andrew Burnham can do the heck that he likes. I cannot say that person's annoying me, so I punched him in the face. I'm a free person, so I slept with that beautiful woman who I saw the other day. I can't do that. I cannot say I'm free. God wants me to enjoy life, so I get drunk every Friday and Saturday and I eat far too much. I'm not free to tell lies when they're expedient. I'm not free to trash God's planet and hunt animals that he holds dear. I'm not free to live only for my own pleasure, stuff everybody else. That's not what freedom means at all. I've not been set free by God so I can just carry on sinning regardless. No, no, no. I've been set free for a purpose. A wonderful purpose. I've been set free to love. And after giving his two negative statements, in the second half of verse 13, Paul turns to the positive. Finally, he gets to what we've been set free for. As believers in Jesus, we are free to live life well. We are free to love God. We are free to love and serve others. Let me read these verses again. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, 
Love your neighbour as yourself. Love your neighbour as yourself. And it was for these words that I began with my typewriter and computer illustration. You see, Christ didn't come to destroy the law because it was bad. Christ came to fulfil the law, to fulfil everything that it pointed to. And in the process of that, to enable God's people themselves to start living to a much higher standard. The Old Testament law had always been a calling to love God and to love others. This is what summed it all up. And Jesus came to make that possible. We use computers today because they are better than typewriters. Well, if you live trying to follow Jesus, trying to do what he would do, seeking the help of the Spirit, being guided by the Spirit in your conscience, you will achieve a much higher standard of living than you would ever achieve by just following a set of rules and trying to tick the boxes. Far more people will be blessed by your attitude and your thinking and your actions than if you were just trying to tick off the rules day by day. And this is how Paul thinks we are to use the freedom that Christ won for us on the cross and in the empty tomb. We are to use that freedom to love. We have been set free for a purpose and it's to serve others, particularly those in need. And through this passage, we get a few glimpses of what Paul thinks true love is. Paul thinks that true love is defined at the cross. This is the message that he's been constantly preaching, it says in verse 11. Love is costly. Love is sacrificial. Love is giving your best even to those who don't deserve it. Love thereby is a choice. It is a difficult choice. Paul thinks that love is inspired and enabled by the Spirit. In verse 5, Paul says it's the Spirit that leads us to righteousness. When you think about it, it's much harder to love your neighbour than it is to eat kosher food. It's much harder to be kind to someone who's hurt you in the past than it is to get circumcised. It's much harder to be compassionate to somebody than to attend a festival. When Christ set us free from the law, it wasn't a dumbing down. It was a raising the bar. It's hard to live a life following Jesus, doing what Jesus would do. And therefore, we need the Holy Spirit's help. But that's the glorious message of the gospel. Jesus died and rose again. He ascended into heaven to pour out his spirit on us so that we could live like him. That's what the spirit is for. The Spirit inspires us to love and enables us to love when it's difficult. And we're going to think much more about that next week. That's what next week is about, the fruit of the Spirit. And finally, Paul thinks love is always practical. Practical and exercised in relationships. He says we've been set free to serve one another humbly in love. We've been set free to love our neighbours as ourselves. 
To love means not to bite and devour and destroy those who make our lives difficult. It's to offer them peace. For Paul, love is a verb. It's a practical doing word. Christian love is not theoretical. You don't debate it in seminaries. You do it. It's tangible. It's visible. This is computer processing compared to typewriting. This is a way far beyond just ticking the boxes, keeping the rules. This is choosing to follow Jesus and love those that he loves. This is what the law anticipated. This is freedom. Freedom to love. Freedom to love God. Freedom to serve others. This is what Christ came to make possible for the benefit of all of his world. And I wonder in the days ahead, may we use our freedom to serve others, particularly in the time of this coronavirus. May people see and hear about God by the way that we love them in the crisis. Let's pray together.